Can Jewish people keep the Old Testament law and their ancient traditions while also following Jesus as their rabbi and messiah? Well, it's happening all over the world, and it's called Messianic Judaism. Today on Messiah Podcast, we explore the origin, purpose, and destiny of Messianic Judaism and explain why it's a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. Put your hand in mine together. We will walk in harmony. Let me introduce you to my teacher, the rabbi from the Galilee. You're listening to Messiah Podcast, where Jesus is Jewish and that changes everything. Messiah Podcast is a production of First Fruits of Zion. Welcome back to Messiah Podcast. I'm Stephanie Hammond, and I'm here with my co-host, once again, Jacob Franzak. What's up, Jacob? How are you today? I'm doing well. My parents got a cappuccino machine, so I've been sneaking over to uh, to to make, you know, that frothy coffee. The frothy coffee. I do. I'm familiar with it. You remember that movie, Father of the Bride, like from back in the 90s, our childhood? Oh, is that Steve Martin? Steve Martin and uh, Kimberly Williams before she added the Paisley, and he gets her that cappuccino machine. And I just remember looking at that in their like super 90s awesome kitchen thinking, ooh, I don't drink coffee yet. I'm seven, but that thing looks amazing. So <laughs> yeah, awesome. I'm very happy for you. I understand that today we are going to interview a colleague. Yeah, yeah. So we've had requests from people who are like, okay, is there an episode of the podcast I can listen to, to figure out what is Messianic Judaism, because that's the religion we espouse here. Whether we're Jewish or Gentile here at First Fruits of Zion, we are on the, a boat called Messianic Judaism. And probably not everybody knows exactly what that means. So we've asked Aaron to come answer some questions about what is Messianic Judaism. I think Aaron's going to do a great job, really shed some light on this subject for us. Aaron has read so many books. He knows so much about traditional Judaism, so much about history. He's, as the director of Vine of David, he he knows so much about the luminaries, the first people who started doing this after a, a, a hiatus imposed by church persecution of Jewish people. And uh, we're going to pick his brain and yours a little bit because you're a Messianic Jewish person. That is true. And we're going to get an idea of what is Messianic Judaism, right? And we're going to try to explain it so that uh, someone who doesn't know what it is can come away knowing what it is. That's our goal for today. That's fantastic. I'm excited to share that with everyone today. So let's do it. With all that in mind, let's uh, let's jump into our conversation. Well, welcome Aaron Eby to Messiah Podcast. It's good to have you back. Uh, it's really nice to be here again. We're, we're, we're talking about a subject that I think might interest you today. It's Messianic Judaism. Hey. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. So um, for all of those listeners, and, and I'd like to make this uh, as simple as possible in case this is somebody's first episode and they have no idea what we're on about here. What is Messianic Judaism? And, and I'm fortunate here to have two people I can ask the question to who are Messianic Jews I don't know I, whether you guest first or ladies first. I guess we'll do ladies first. We'll be we'll be chivalrous today and say, Steph, what what, is, what do you think Messianic Judaism is? Well, okay. So basically to me, 
Messianic Judaism is Jewish people believing that Yeshua is the Messiah and then continuing to live out their faith as Jewish people. That's it. All right, Aaron, do you concur? Um, I do concur. I would articulate it as uh, Judaism that is Messianic. Ah. Um, in other words, a, a f form of Judaism that is characterized by devotion to Yeshua. Yeah, scratch everything I just said. I really like his better. That sounds good. Well, there we go. <laughs> so um, I've been in, in orbit around this thing for 15 or 20 years. So this sounds normal to me. I don't think it sounds normal to everybody. And so why is Messianic Judaism controversial amongst Jewish people who are not Messianic? Like, what's wrong with it? Uh, yeah, that depends uh, a lot on which Jews we're talking about. And there's a, a litany of objections. One is the basic idea of, is Yeshua the Messiah, or could he be? And so those objections range from biblical interpretation to his history and, and other things like that. Did he fulfill Messianic prophecy, or is are we in the Messianic era? What is the Messiah supposed to do? So that's one aspect of it. There's also objections to Christian theology in general. Typically, the wider Jewish world sees Messianic Judaism as a form of Christianity. And so theological objections such as the role of the Torah and Christology, all of those things play in and those are considered incompatible with Judaism. Then, I mean, probably even more significant would be the history of persecution of the Jewish community by, by the Christian church over centuries. And that includes not only Gentile Christians, but there's also been a history of apostasy of Jews converting to Christianity and then turning against the people they came from and being assisted by the Christian church. So that's got that's really left a, a very negative taste in the mouths of the, the Jewish world. And generally, the, the wider Jewish world sees Messianic Judaism as a, not just a Christian movement, but a missionary effort occupied mostly by Gentiles to try to get Jews to become Christians by disguising themselves as Jews. But ultimately, like the biggest thing is, is sociological uh, objections. A common refrain is that, you know, if you believe in Christ, that makes you a Christian. So to be a Christian is not to be a Jew. And just that strain of logic is uh, what sets the def definitions in most people's minds. Well, I think it's it's important to know the historical context and the situation in which we find ourselves as far as like interfaith relations and be sensitive to that. Mm -hmm. So the Jewish community are not the only ones who are not on board with Messianic Judaism. Christian, not all Christians love it either. Um, and Steph, maybe you can tell us some of your experience from going to Bible college. Why do Christians not like about Messianic Judaism? Yeah, it's re it was really hard for a lot of people to wrap their minds around. And I think some of the main objections people have is because whether they know it or not, they've just been inundated with replacement theology that once you believe in Jesus, you're just not Jewish anymore. And that comes from misinterpreting texts like Galatians 3, 28 through 29. You know, there is no Jew or Gentile anymore. Everybody's the same. And of course, we understand from distinction theology that that's not at all what those things are saying. We're talking about Jews and Gentiles being unified for the same purpose, but we each play different roles, right? I mean, that's just one one example of many things that are misinterpreted. You've dropped a couple of technical terms that I don't know if a first-time listener would necessarily be familiar with. So let's very quickly, I mean, either of these terms could get their own episode, frankly. But replacement theology 
and distinction theology. So replacement theology is the idea that the Jewish people used to be God's people and they're not anymore. And now it's the, the Christians are, are the people of it. And a Jewish person can still be part of the people of God, but they have to join the new club, right? Ex exactly. That's replacement theology, which we don't believe and is completely opposite of what the Bible says. Yes. <laughs> so what, what we've replaced replacement theology with here at First Fruit Design is distinction theology, which is the idea that in the body of Messiah, amongst the people who follow him as their rabbi and savior and, and, and master, you have Jews and you have Gentiles, and that's okay. They, they don't they don't get meshed into one homogenous blob. They actually have um, different callings according to uh, what ha what God has called them to do. God has a calling for the Jewish people that's unique, and He has a calling for the nations. So, I wanted uh, our listeners to be able to understand what you had said there. Right, exactly. And I want to clarify that most Christians that are on board with replacement theology aren't doing so because they're anti-Semitic or trying to be. This is just theology that's been so woven into Christian theology for the last, you know, 1800 years or so that it's just become the norm. And most people don't realize that its origins are anti-Semitic. You, you talked about a Bible verse. So... Maybe we can go to Aaron and, and ask the question, why is it that we can't find verses that just clearly state, be Messianic Jewish, um, but we can find verses that look like they say, oh, Judaism doesn't look that good anymore? Yeah, for one, the idea that uh, Christianity is the religion of the New Testament is reading our modern era into that period of time. So the authors of the New Testament had no concept of what Christianity even was. Um, they didn't see what they're they, what they were doing as a new religion whatsoever. So, to them, they don't need to tell Jews continue to be Jews. Their message to Jews was, "Hey, here's the Messiah." And so, the idea of adding the recognition of who the Messiah is to Judaism was just sort of like a given. Now, where those the verses come in that sound like they're saying, hey, you know what, being Jewish is not the 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 thing to do. That's in, in passages where they're dealing with Gentiles who are now uh, coming into the movement, uh, actually, which is amazing because it's in, it, it's the prophet said that this would happen, but G Gentiles are coming to the movement and their concern is that unless they become Jewish, they're not going to escape this apocalyptic day of, of judgment. And so, you know, the, the community is saying, the Messianic Jewish community is telling them, look, no, being Jewish isn't the requirement here. You can be a Gentile and you can serve God and you can even follow the Messiah and escape apocalyptic judgment uh, without conversion. So go ahead and continue. Don't get circumcised. You know, don't take on the whole weight of the Torah. You're better off continuing to be righteous as a Gentile. Our reading of the New Testament has become colored by all these generations of history and that replacement theology. So often now we apply modern developments in, in Christian theology as if they were contemporary with the writing of the New Testament. And that's just not the case. Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, to try to put ourselves in the shoes of someone at that time who's a, a person of faith in the God of Israel right? And you have to get into that mindset rather than, like you said, reading modern theological developments into the New Testament. That's hard to do. And if that sounds like a big step for you, listener, you might want to consider 
Haya Sod, which is a 10-week course designed to introduce you to a Messianic Jewish worldview. You can find that at ffoz.org. So, Steph, I'm sure people have objected to your lifestyle at some point or said, like, why don't you just be a Christian or asked you about some of these Bible verses. What's your, do you have a go-to gentle, compassionate rebuttal for, for people who have questions or concerns about your Messianic Jewish identity? It's all very clearly laid out in history and in biblical evidence. I mean, the first Messianic Jewish community is led by four Jewish guys, Yeshua's brother, Peter, Paul, John, they're all Jewish guys. They're all dedicated to the Jewish faith, and they were devout in their Judaism, along with all the other people who were uh, worshiping with them. And the Bible tells us in Acts that there were thousands of Jewish people who came to faith, and they continued to pray three times a day and sacrifice in the temple. They would share ritual meals together. They gathered in synagogues on Shabbat. They observed um, all the Jewish feasts. They met in the temple uh, to, to fellowship and learn together. We also know that there were a lot of priests that came to faith. There were Pharisees who came to recognize Yeshua as Messiah. It's just so clearly laid out that I don't understand how, well, it's just like what you're saying. When you read the Bible through a certain lens, you're used to reading it through that lens. It's only when you go back to the original context that you actually start to see the truth of the situation. Yeah. Well, and I think that's important to notice. And and people do notice it. You know, when I was an undergrad getting a degree in religion from Liberty University, I had to take a course on Acts. And if you really get into Acts, you do find they're still going to the temple. They're still doing animal sacrifice. The apostles are still doing animal sacrifices. They're pr- they're praying at like the Jewish times of prayer. They're ke- They're doing like Nazarite vows, <laughs> like they are like hard, hardcore into Judaism. And I I was flabbergasted when I realized that I had basically just skipped all of those verses um, <laughs> when I was reading Acts as a child. But that's how we were told to read Acts. We were told, I was told by to not not to read it as if it was like a template for how we should do things today. It was a special time, you know. Well, it's true. But for anyone listening, it is easy to miss some of these things because we don't understand in our modern day evangelical mindset what some of these verses mean. Like Peter and Paul going up to the temple at the time of prayer, it doesn't necessarily say, oh, they went and they they brought a sacrifice and they, <laughs> you know, they engaged in this ritual. It, But if you understand what it meant to participate in temple ritual and prayer at the temple in that time and in the first century, then you would know that they were making sacrifices. So just to say, you know, it's not totally on you or anyone else who's just reading the, you know, the text straightforward. Just as an example of how backwards, though, that this gets interpreted, you, you look at how Yeshua went into the temple and he started throwing things around and yelling at people. So often that gets interpreted to mean that, look, he doesn't like the temple. Why is everybody here? You should be all going to churches where what's really happening is he's saying, this is a holy place and you people are desecrating it. God loves this place. It's, it figures into Messianic prophecy. This should be a house of prayer for all the nations like Isaiah prophesies that's going to happen in the Messianic era. And now you're causing it to be liable to destruction, which is a terrible terrible thing. And it flips his words on their heads to, to say that he was uh, disdainful of the temple or wanted it to be destroyed so he could have a new <laughs> a new um, way of, of approaching God. So 
Would it be fair to say in concise terms that Messianic Judaism is to try to get back to what the apostles were doing? Because I think a lot of non-Jewish people get attracted to Messianic Judaism from that impulse. We've been saying that it's very important to read the Bible in its cultural context. So I affirm those people, those Christians who say, hmm, maybe I'm not understanding the New Testament. Maybe I should look at history and the contextual cultural information and, and religious information and linguistic information and bring that to bear in my interpretation and my my study of the New Testament. Yeah, that's a good thing. And even maybe that might have a, a practical implication on our behavior, on our on our, our theology. And so that's a, a good thing. But it's not right to say that that's what Messianic Judaism is. Messianic Judaism ultimately is the practice of Judaism and uh, the Jewish people acknowledging Yeshua as the Messiah. And at that point, you you do, you know, in order to, to understand him and his teachings, you've got to study the New Testament. And of course, you're going to study it in its context and so on. But for one thing, being a part of the Messianic Jewish community, it's a subset in our self-identity. It's a subset of the Jewish community as a whole. And that Jewish community as a whole has a history that goes back for thousands of years. And it includes the history of Christian persecution. It includes the history of Ashkenazim and Sephardim. And it includes the developments of the Talmud and the Geonim. And the. And I don't want to throw out a bunch of, of terms that people want to understand, but just the generations of interpreters and all that. All of those are our people. All of those are our community. And we don't want to erase that or invalidate that. That's a part of the whole tapestry of the Jewish community. And so, look, we could say that the first century was somehow the golden era that we need all need to go back to. But why? Why not go back to the days of Solomon or why not go back to the days of Adam and Eve? But our, you know, my, at least my personal view is that this entire 2000 year exile that the Jewish people have experienced has been in relationship with God and that God has taken our people through all these experiences, has formed and has shaped our identity. And Moses talked, said that that exact thing would happen. So it's it's not even, it's a biblical idea that this is a, a process of development and growth, a process of seeking God, seeking to find him in all the, the, the places of the world where we've been scattered. And we're in a process and that process is a good thing. Let's just say Judaism in the first century is not the the perfect example of what Jewish life should be like. I think anyone living at that time would have heartily agreed with you. I mean, it was so sectarian at that time. Everyone was disagreeing with each other. I mean, and looking back at that period of time, we can say that that sectarianism and the underlying causes of that sectarianism are what led to the destruction of the temple from a Jewish perspective. And we're paying the price for that right now. And we're seeking to, to correct those issues that, all, that already existed at that time um, so that we can move forward and into the process of redemption. I like how you talk about um, the exile being a time for which God has a purpose for the Jewish people. I think that's a big paradigm shift for someone coming from a Christian background, because there's this idea that the Jews are in the doghouse and like God's just waiting for them to become Christians. Whereas when you jettison replacement theology, well, if, if the Jewish people haven't been replaced, then they're still God's people and he's still working with them. Yeah. In fact, there are passages, I can't remember the reference right off the top of my head, but there's a passage that refers to how at the end of time, God will return the Jewish people back to the land. And the word that uses for return is in a form that doesn't mean 
to cause something else to return, it means to return, like the, like the, as if Hush, as if God Himself is returning with the Jewish people, which then implies that He was in exile with them. Um, and that makes that's that makes a lot of sense that He sends them away and He goes with them and is accompanying them through um, all those difficulties and trials that they're going through. I want to switch gears a little bit because you know. We've had we've had the New Testament for nineteen hundred years. Did Messianic Jews come from somewhere? Is this something that's just popped up recently? Like people realized that this was biblical, or is there like continuity and like how far back can we look and find this this uh, phenomenon? The myth that is perpetuated everywhere, and I think people honestly believe this, is that there was just Christianity until about like the 1967 or something like that. And all of a sudden, Moish Rosen invented Jews for Jesus. And that was the birth of Messianic Judaism. Yeah, there's plenty of historical references to Messianic Jews, even if they're not called necessarily Messianic Jews. It has a real and extensive history, didn't come out of nowhere. Obviously, we already talk about the Book of Acts. But uh, Jewish followers of Yeshua were documented for several centuries after that, and they established a religious community called Notzrim, the Nazarenes, right? Or originally the Way. But all that to say, you have ancient church records that talk about Yeshua's grandnephews, actually. Their names were James and Zochar. They're the grandsons of Jude. They're questioned by the Roman emperor in regard to being Davidic heirs, like, oh, do you believe you're going to take away my kingdom? Conversations like that. You have in the Talmud, a guy named Jacob from Sachnin, who's recorded as a heretic, but he's talking, he's having a conversation and exchange with Rabbi Eliezer. Then the rabbi gets in trouble um, because he was talking to a heretic. But this guy is referred to as Talmidei Yeshu Hanotsri, so a student of Jesus the Nazarene. Even as late as the year 404, you have Jerome writing to Augustine, and he's annoyed because he's having contact with Messianic Jews. He says that there's these people throughout all the synagogues of the East, and while they hold sound doctrine, his perspective on them is that, and I'll quote it, they desire to be both Jews and Christians, and they are neither one nor the other. That sounds pretty familiar to me. <laughs> so, I mean, no, we've been around for a while. Yeah, and you know, it's we've been identified as a heresy. I think <laughs> Irenaeus didn't he has a whole write up about those people that uh, are really nothing but Jews, except that they believe in Jesus and and so on. But then we were forced to go underground basically after Nicaea because we were given like three options. You either become a part of the church and you renounce everything that has to do with your Jewish identity and Judaism, or you go back to the synagogue and renounce Yeshua, or, and we weren't given this option, but a lot of us took it, you just go underground and keep your mouth shut and try to survive into the next century. So that's why we weren't on the timeline for a while. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that it's so important that we learn church history. And if you don't know that, then like you have no context for understanding what's happening with Jews or Christians or Messianic Judaism. Well, so here's the controversial or maybe a provocative statement that you can derive from this idea that if the original movement of followers of Jesus that eventually gave rise to Christianity was initially a Jewish sect, then it turns on its head the idea that Messianic Judaism is a type of Christianity because Messianic Judaism predates Christianity. And Christianity is an offshoot of Messianic Judaism. People who find that idea strange, just go just go look in your Bible for for uh, 
you know, Christmas, Easter, Epiphany, Advent, you know, look, look in there for, for all the Christian stuff. And, um, you know, what, what you'll find is that a lot of that came later. Even, even something as simple as worshiping on Sunday, which is great. And I do it every week. It's, it's real hard to pin that down anywhere in the New Testament. Yeah, that's, that's correct. It's important to know, okay, worshiping on Sunday, you know, in the Jewish community where they have daily davening, they worship on Sunday every week and on Monday and on Tuesday. So it's like getting together to meet on a particular day of the week to pray together doesn't say anything about the Sabbath changing. But I think a, a lot of the reason that the early Messianic Jewish community began to meet on Saturday night was because there were the things they wanted to do that were not appropriate on Shabbat. They were busy on Shabbat doing things that were fitting for the Sabbath, that were allowed on the Sabbath. And then afterward, they have some business to take care of. You, know, you shouldn't do that on Shabbat. So you, so you do it Saturday night. And Saturday night is a really important time um, symbolically as well. And, you know, to be, to be fair, the historical Christian church, the Catholic church, does not say that the Sabbath changed to Sunday. That was actually something that Protestants came up with much, much later. Catholic position is simply that Saturday is the Sabbath that we just don't keep it anymore. <laughs> and that Sunday is the Lord's Day, a completely separate idea. So as we touch on these ideas of Jewish religious observance, keeping the Sabbath and so forth, Tell us a little bit about the spectrum, because not, not all Messianic Jews are observant, like they wouldn't really fit in like an Orthodox community with their, with their lifestyle. What's going on there? Are they the majority? And, and if so, what's, what's their reasoning? What's the philosophy behind that? There's a big range, big spectrum, just like you would find in mainstream Judaism today. You have everything from Reconstructionist reform, one side of the rainbow to the other, you know, ultra-Orthodox, um, Haredi, uh, some sects that you might find in Israel. But um, also in Messianic Judaism, you have a spectrum, maybe not quite as drastic, but just like that as well. And I think to answer your first question, why are many Messianic Jews not observant, so to speak. I think a lot of them came to faith as young people in the 60s and 70s, and there was the Jesus movement, and a lot of them just went straight into churches, and they found out Jesus was the Messiah, and that's what they were either told to do or made sense to do. And so you'll find them connected in that way. And then some went on to start Messianic synagogues, and they're either observant or not observant. I think it really depends what kind of synagogue you go to. You're going to find some Messianic synagogues with they're basically churches with a Torah scroll, <laughs> or at least with an annual Hanukkah party. You know, there's some connection there. Um, but then there's some Messianic Jewish synagogues that could easily be taken for an Orthodox shul. And I think uh, you're both familiar with some of those. From my realm of Messianic Judaism in, in the Union, for instance, I mean, most, sorry, that's the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, for those that aren't familiar. We call it the Union. Most congregations within this Union will add a Torah service that would be familiar to many mainstream Jewish people. It's not a monolithic movement. That's a really important point. So if you have experience with a Messianic Jew or with Messianic Jewish people or a Messianic Jewish congregation, you shouldn't let that define your impression of what Messianic Jews or Messianic Judaism is like. Same as if you were going to meet any other Jewish person. Yeah, right. They wouldn't be defining Judaism for you. <laughs> so Messianic Judaism is not a denomination like Lutheranism or even like Reform Judaism, which is an actual 
organization, right? We're not nearly as organized as that. There are affiliations. You brought up the you brought up the UMJC, the Union Investing in Jewish Congregations, and there are other affiliations, but even those are are not very uniform um, when it comes down to it. I think a really important thing to understand the history of and and the the current way things are, you have to really go back to the Enlightenment, the Jewish Enlightenment, the Haskalah, where in Europe there was an awakening, so to speak, among Jewish people. On one hand, it's a modernism movement where traditional Jews encountered modernist ideas about science and about history and things like that. And it caused there to be a lot of new ideas to emerge in the Jewish community, caused a lot of rethinking of things. And in traditional circles, it caused a hunkering down of we need to protect ourselves from these dangerous ideas. But this is where Reformed Judaism came from, that they are trying to reconcile those changes in society with their Jewish identity and to say, well, if we don't modernize, then the, the Jewish identity is going to disappear altogether. So they formed this Reformed Judaism as a blend of modernist ideas and Jewish identity. And Reformed Judaism has become very popular and its, and its offshoot, which is conservative Judaism, which is, has a misleading name, I think, because it sounds extremely traditional by the name conservative, but it has a philosophy that's similar to Reform with a practice, an outward practice that that tends toward the toward the Orthodox. So the, the you brought up the boomer era of Messianic Jewish leaders, many of them who were raised in reform or possibly conservative environments. And in those environments, they're not Shomer Shabbos typically. They're not keeping kosher typically. They've got some other ways to express their Jewish identity, not so much through strict observance of the mitzvot. And unfortunately, I think in those circles, there's also this um, villainization of traditional Judaism as fanatics. They're stuck in 17th century Poland or whatever. So they go from that to, as you know, they're raised in this and then maybe become secular as children and then become wrapped into a Christian church who also is telling them that Jews are wrong for keeping the Torah. And so when they go to establish a Messianic synagogue, they're drawing on their Jewish experience, which is really based in Reformed Judaism. And may even attempt and, and long for and see the, and appreciate more traditional observance, but it's just not necessarily in their uh, experience to draw from. So it's a struggle. That, I, that's a stereotypical fictional character that I just made up there, but I think it kind of tells a common type of story well, and I think, you know, as a, as a, someone who's raised Christian, you know, I feel like the church has a little bit of uh, culpability here because we did take a bunch of Jewish people in and tell them, oh, you don't have to do any of the Jewish stuff anymore. Or you can't do the Jewish stuff anymore. I remember a, a, a wonderful lady who was a part of our synagogue who grew up Jewish and at one point had this uh, this realization that Yeshua is Messiah. She finds herself in the Lutheran church and the Lutheran church tells her, you're no longer Jewish. You can't practice Judaism at all anymore. And, and so for, for decades, she was kind of stuck there in this Lutheran church being forced to kind of constantly deny. And as a Jewish person, everybody's always suspicious of her that she's going to revert back to keeping the Torah, you know? And only when she found Messianic Judaism could she... Uh, return to that Jewish identity and become who she always wanted <laughs> wanted to be, and uh, and it's really sad that she spent so many decades being told that her Jewish identity was really meaningless. So we we've, we we mentioned this right toward the beginning that 
Messianic Judaism, for some reason, has a reputation as a missionary enterprise amongst traditional Jews, or maybe more, maybe amongst Jewish people in general, most of whom are not particularly observant, I mean, just by population. Is this true in any sense? And if not, like, what's, where does the reputation come from? I have heard in the past some Messianic Jews say, well, I just keep kosher as a witness. And I don't agree with that at all. I understand where they're coming from. Um, in some ways, I feel like they want to show other Jewish people, hey, you can still be Jewish and follow Jesus, which is true. But if you're just including Jewish ritual in your life for that purpose only, yeah, I don't agree with that motive. I mean, I also hope that the way I live my life as a Jewish person who follows Yeshua demonstrates as a result to other Jewish people and other people who aren't Jewish just what we're all about and that it that what we believe is true and possible to be Jewish and believe this and, and live this way. But that's not why I do it. I do it because I'm in a covenant with Hashem <laughs> and my ancestors made a covenant with Hashem, you know? But yeah, there are people that believe that and do that and I would not say it's a majority anymore. I think Stephanie's exactly right that it exists and it always has, there's always been a relationship between Messianic Jewish groups and evangelistic efforts toward Jews. And there are, to, to this day, there are Messianic congregations that I think that exist specifically in order to reach out to Jews and that their practice mostly is a cultural adaptation of Christianity. But we talked about how Messianic Judaism is not monolithic and there's been a, I think, a renewed sense of, hey, actually, our practice is correct on its own right, based on our covenant with Hashem. And there's a, there's also a, a, another really big distinction. Messianic Judaism, when it first emerged in the 1800s, their basis for observing was not in order to convince Jews to become Christians. It was on the basis that that well, I'm Jewish, I should do Jewish things. I have a I have a covenant with Hashem, there's the Torah, it's still in force. But they still wanted the, the world to know the power of Yeshua as Messiah to redeem Israel in the Jewish sense of the word, not in the sense of converting them to Christianity. So later, the, the Messianic Jewish movement was sort of flooded by a Jewish missionary approach. But in more, more recent decades, the, the movement has gone in the other direction to say, hey, the Torah is really still our responsibility as the Jewish community. I think that that of all the different efforts to reach Jews, to be, make them become Christians, I think Messianic Judaism is one of the worst possible ways to do it. It's, it isn't effective. For one thing, this, it's not, you're not going to reach a level where a, a traditional Orthodox committed Jew is gonna look and say, oh, that looks appealing. They're already pretty happy in their life as they are right now. They feel close to Hashem and they're not looking for another religion, and they're not, not wandering into other shuls. But if they're feeling disaffected by their, their Jewish life, and that happens in every people group all over the world, if somebody has a bad experience and they say, forget it, I'm leaving, they don't want more Judaism. <laughs> they want a clean break. They might become Buddhist, or if they do become a, a follower of Jesus, they're going to be the most, they're going to find something that doesn't remind them of their past. And they're going to uh, become Anglican or evangelical or something like that and not want anything to do with their with it. Messianic Judaism is the least attractive option for someone leaving traditional Judaism. So if you're in the movement to uh, to do evangelism, 
there's probably better uses of your efforts. So we've mentioned a couple of of, of waves here. We've mentioned a wave of of boomers who got involved with, you know, the Jesus movement in the 60s, 70s. And and people look at that as, oh, that's when Messianic Judaism started. But you mentioned in the 1800s, there were some people. And when you go back that far, you're almost into, maybe not during the Haskalah, the the Jewish Enlightenment, but it's not too long after. You know, I think of like Rabbi um, Yechiel Tzvi Lichtenstein was born in 1831, if I remember correctly. So, you know, you have some Jewish people believing in Jesus, staying super observant, you know, the uh, as traditional as they come. Where did they come from and what happens to, did they start a movement and it just got, it looked different later on or is that something that ran parallel to other things that were going on? I mean. Yeah, well, I think it really does dovetail with the Haskalah. Like one of the very earliest of these folks that, that I can think of is a very little known name. Um, he was brought to my attention by my friend Sheldon. His name is Israel Pick. He died in 1858, to give you some context. And he, I think he was born in 1825. This was a guy who was brilliant. He had a really unique mind. He was bullied as a child, became an atheist. It's a it's a Haskalah story, you know. He became a modern rabbi before the reform movement exactly, but he was modern, if you want to put it that way. And he lost his job, and then he attempted to convert to Christianity under the auspices of forming a Christless Christianity for Jews. This is sort of almost what Reform Judaism originally was. He saw Christianity and its benefits, and it's like, well, as a Jew, we could do that just without the Jesus part, and it would be, wouldn't it be great? Then he had a dream about Yeshua that troubled him and caused him to, to rethink this. And so he becomes a, a traditional Christian, but he had a really hard time with Christian doctrine. So he puts out this pamphlet called uh, Life from the Dead, A Word to My People, and an anti-missionary went and refuted his testimony that was in that pamphlet. And he took that anti-missionary's response to heart and he kind of rethought things a little bit more. He put out a journal, he studied more, but then he gets this revelation from Yeshua that Jews should keep the Torah. And then he gets into real conflict with the missionaries that he's involved with. Um, He's arrested for heresy. So this is not a, for him, the whole idea of keeping the Torah was not a, a missionary tactic. This gets him in big trouble with the missionaries. He was released after four months. And uh, eventually he came to, went to Israel and he just sort of disappeared one day. I think he might've, we don't know how he died, but he, he went to establish like a colony or something like that in the land of Israel. You know, so I wish we had more information on him, but he's one of the earliest pioneers that you could say in that movement. So he's predating reform Judaism, but kind of in that vein of it. And that's what led him into it. You mentioned Yechiel Tzvi Lichtenstein. He's sometimes considered like the granddaddy of Messianic Judaism because he was the luminary of all the luminaries. All the other pioneers look back to him. He grew up Hasidic. Um, he was actually an heir to a Hasidic dynasty and was a little bit frustrated by, I guess what you call the focus on the tzaddik. It got to be a little bit too much for him. That He was expected to be this great, this great Rebbe who everybody comes to connect to Hashem. And he kind of, there was, he's not the only Hasidic Rebbe who had this trouble. There's actually several movements that are like that. I think of the Peshiska movement, uh, where they got kind of frustrated by how the Hasidic Rebbe was, was over exalted and, um, they wanted to see something different, but 
anyway, I think he bought a New Testament somewhere and ended up reading it. And it was re what really changed his mind was how different it was from what he expected. So he wrote a whole commentary on the New Testament based on Talmud and Midrash and Hasidut and everything like that. And uh, he raised up a group of disciples that didn't want to join a church. He never quite felt at home, even though he was involved in Christian missionaries to the Jews, he, he referred to himself as a stranger. You know, he was outside of his element. And this was the difficulty a lot of those early guys had. They had no friends. There wasn't a Messianic Jewish community for them. There were, was only the Christian world for them to turn to. They were ostracized from their Jewish world. And so even though they had more in common in their thought process with them, only really the, the there were there were friendly Christians who would take them in and but he thought of himself as a stranger in this this Gentile Christian world. So he's a great example. And then you have, you know, the first real attempt to build a Messianic Jewish community was Joseph Rabinowitz. And the part of the reason that you didn't have a lot of Messianic Jewish synagogues like we have today was because not everybody really thought that that's the right way to be a fo Jewish follower of Yeshua. I think of Chaim Yedidia Polak, who uh, sometimes is known as Theophilus Lucky. His idea was, look, there should be Jewish followers of Yeshua in, in all the synagogues. Why should we branch out and create our own little islands of synagogues when we're just Jews? We should be a part of the Jewish community. So he was another very strong advocate that Jews should maintain Jewish practice. He promoted that idea. He got criticized by like David Barron. David Barron was a Jewish Christian who was a missionary to the Jews who was just adamantly against Messianic Judaism. And so he criticized Chaim Yedidia Polak because of his observance and the way he raised, he said, these guys are just Talmudical Jews. And even though Chaim Yedidia Polak was trying to advocate and say, okay, you know, any steps that you take in Jewish observance is good. Still for him, he had a very high calling, he had high expectations of himself. And so, he was not very popular for that reason. You know, it just kind of continues on. You know, there's Paul Philip Levertov, Rabbi Daniel Zion. Fortunately, Rabbi Daniel Zion did have some friends in Israel. Pauline Rose, for example, Avram Poliak, um, Moshe Emanuel ben Meir, and some others. But all these guys were going against the grain. Did they want other people to know about Yeshua as Messiah? Yes. But were they promoting Christianity? Absolutely not. They were opposed by Christianity. They were opposed actually in Israel by a group called the Hebrew Christian Alliance of America, who declared that they would never accept Messianic Judaism, this idea of Messianic Judaism. They absolutely denounced it and attempted to uh, foil the efforts of Messianic Jews in Israel. But these guys are real, real heroes to me, and we do owe them for the, the initial idea of Messianic Judaism in our modern era. The term Messianic Judaism itself was probably invented by Chaim Yedidia Polak. He and some others put out a periodical. They only put out one period of it. But in 1910, it was called The Messianic Jew. But I think by that time, he had already been using that term for well over a decade. So a Messianic Jew, in their minds, was somebody, a Jewish person who practiced Messianic Judaism. It was derived from the idea of Judaism. And J Messianic Judaism was to be distinguished from assimilated Christianity, Jewish Christianity. So First Fruit of Zion falls, just so everybody knows who's listening, we definitely fall closer in our theology, like as an organization, we're going to be closer to, uh, 
you know, Daniel Tsio and Avram Poliach, these 1800s and then, you know, World War II era people who were like, it's just, it's Judaism. It looks like Judaism. It acts like Judaism. It talks like Judaism because it's Judaism. It never wasn't Judaism. We're Jewish people. I'm not, but they, they would be saying we're Jewish people. The only difference is we think we know who the Messiah is. It's, it's, it's Yeshua. We are friends with all the other types of Messianic Jews, certainly. But um, as far as what the, the, the DNA of our organization, would you say that, that we would be closest to the people that we were just talking about? That's at least our, our goal, I would say. And uh, so, yeah, so it's good. It's important to see, to recognize some different shades and interpretations of what Messianic Judaism means. And I've been criticized myself by people from the UMJC and others that what First Fruits of Zion is, is promoting is an idealized form of Messianic Judaism. It's something that doesn't really exist. Whereas I think the UMJC is pretty satisfied at saying what exists, exists right now is Messianic Judaism. Whereas we're, we're looking at those luminaries and the vision that they cast, and we're sort of recasting that vision, a vision of something that we hope to achieve someday, but isn't really happening on the ground in very many places. I don't want to speak for any other organizations, but I think we're very inspired by those stories. And we have a, a very much a forward thinking perspective on Messianic Judaism. I'm not going to deny that I'm looking at an idealized form of Messianic Judaism, one where there's legitimate and authentic Jewish life being practiced, and that is consistent with complete devotion to Yeshua as the Messiah. So it's something that that I probably will spend my entire life driving toward and trying to establish rather than, you know, the day to day I go to go to shul and I'm happy with the way things are. Yeah, I mean, I think what we do is we're looking at the kingdom. We have a what we think is a biblical view of what it's going to be like after Jesus comes back and, and takes over the world. And we just want to be ready for that. And that is an ideal. I mean, it's some, it's a, none of us can bring in the kingdom ourselves. I mean, Hashem has to do it. It's going to be a, an apocalyptic, miraculous uh, end of the end of time, you called it. But that, but we can still get ready for it. I think that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And this is my, in my view, why I hold to Messianic Judaism despite all the difficulties, because I've been also asked, you know, why not just, why not just make your life easier and join the Jewish community and live out your life as a Jew? And in my perspective, the, the purpose of Judaism and the purpose of the Jewish people, it's God bringing the world to a place of redemption, to the Messianic era. So God chose Avraham. He chose his children after him. He revealed the Torah. He, he chose the Jewish people and he revealed the Torah to them and he instructed them with, with all the history that they've gone through, gave them the temple, gave them the calendar and, the, and, the, and so many different things. But the point of that is just not to say, hey, hey, here's a nice religion. It'll give you peace. It'll make you happy. And uh, it's something to do on your Saturday mornings or something like this. That's not, <laughs> that's not what it's for. It's not a social club. There's a goal in mind. Judaism has a goal, and that is the redemption, it is Messiah. It's bringing about the ultimate plan of God for the world. It is a winding back the clock, in a sense, to the Garden of Eden and then taking it a step further, you know? This is what Judaism is supposed to be for. Now, if I found that I believe that there's a particular person that God also 
chose to enact this plan. And I do wholeheartedly believe that Yeshua is the agent of redemption that God chose. Then I would be shooting myself in the foot to say, well, it's too hard to follow him. I'm just going to go to Judaism. It's like it ends up short-circuiting the whole point of there being Judaism if I'm unwilling to also then seek Messiah. Well, on that inspiring note, I think that's about all the time we have today. We don't want to keep Aaron from his important duties any longer than we have to. Um, thanks for joining us today on Messiah Podcast, Aaron. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to, to have this conversation with you. Well, that was fantastic. I'm always glad to have Aaron on the podcast, and I'm always glad to have you here on the podcast, Steph, although I've heard that perhaps your schedule has become a little bit unwieldy as of late. Is that true? Honestly, it has. And um, so I'm going to have to say, at least as a co-host, this will be my last episode as a co-host, but I'm still staying very much involved uh, in the in the background as a producer and um, all the responsibilities that come with that. You know, friends, um, just to be totally transparent, I recently became a parent nine months ago, nine months and three days ago to be exact. And it's just a lot more than I was expecting. It's really hard to host a podcast and have a baby <laughs> around. Really hard for my husband and I to juggle the um just sort of balance that. So that was a really hard decision to make because <laughs> I really love uh, this podcast. I believe in what we're doing. I believe in in getting the, these messages out here and having these conversations. So I'm encouraged to know that that will continue on. You'll be having lots more conversations with the First Fruits of Zion teaching team. I'll come back to visit for sure. I just won't be uh, in the driver's seat most of the time. Well, we'll look forward to that. I also look forward to that. It's been fun, Jacob. Thank you. It has been fun. And for all of you Torah Club students and leaders, Steph will still be appearing in your Portion Connections videos. And if you don't know what that means, go to ffoz.org and click on Torah Club. It's a small group Bible study that is unlike any on the planet. You can actually learn the Bible from a Jewish perspective, and we make it easy and simple. We have video teaching and workbooks, and you build community. It's worth checking out. You can find a club near you. Absolutely. It changed my life and it'll change yours, guaranteed. I promise you won't regret it. Well, friends, thanks for joining us today on Messiah Podcasts. And if you're interested in learning more about the Jewish Jesus, check out First Fruits of Zion at ffoz.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening. Messiah Podcast is made possible by the generosity of our First Fruits of Zion friends. FFOZ friends are people like you who support our mission and get loads of exclusive Bible commentary, teaching, and content. You can join today at ffoz.org. Tune in next time for more great conversations. I'm Stephanie Hammond. And I'm Jacob Franzer. Shalom. Like the waters cover the sea